Last night we talked about God's definition of love and how the gospel is more important than romance and has to be seen as such in our relationships and how it's really belittling the gospel to either be a love Pharisee that distances oneself from all relationships or a love addict that sees every conversation as an opportunity to cultivate this kind of emotional, romantically tensioned intimacy with those around us. And um, both of those things kind of diminish the value of a pure gospel fellowship. And the love spy being the person who uh, really just sees other people as an opportunity for their own selfishness. It doesn't look to serve. It looks to tempt. And we don't want to be any of those kinds of people. We want to be the servant like Jesus who lays down his life, even in the midst of conversations with those of the opposite gender, for their good and for God's glory. Well, this morning, I want to get a little bit more into the topic that I'm sure you showed up here to listen uh, to, and that is specifically the topic of romance. What does the Bible say about it? How are we to think about it? It's, it's a very uh, debated topic, especially when you get into some of the details of, of what's appropriate, of a guy relating to a girl, girl relating to a guy. How are we to think about that? What should be our agenda? What's off-limits or out-of-bounds, and what's totally acceptable? What should we consider just to be normal friendliness, and maybe what goes beyond that to a level of inappropriate behavior? And I think often what we attempt to do when we think about um, romance and dating and courtship and you know relationships with the opposite gender is we sort of start with maybe the world's definition. So we, we've, we've seen, we've grown up in a culture, and we have a perspective about relationship, guys to girls, girls to guys, or maybe uh, we, we've seen others relate, and we sort of start with that definition, but then we know right off the bat that is, is clearly inappropriate. There's some edges on that definition that we've just got to cut off if we're going to call ourselves Christians. And so we do. We cut off, I mean, the first one to go off, obviously, is sexual impurity. So we sort of... You know, chop that edge off. And then we got another edge called, you know, extravagant immodesty. And so we kind of chop that edge off. And then you have, you know, just blatant selfishness wandering from one relationship to the next. And so we kind of chop that edge off. And then if you're, you're just really godly, then you chop off kind of directionless dating that, uh, you know, is quick to dump one person and head to another person. We kind of chop that one off. And then we decide, well, you know, I think, I've, I think this is what Christian relationships should look like. I think I've come up with a pretty godly, cut off all the edges. Well, then you have the ultra-godly in any crowd, and they say, well, no, you, you can't do that. You've got you've to wait to a certain age, and so let's cut that edge off. You know, that's totally inappropriate. And then what we're going to do from there is let's, let's cut off uh, certain types of flirtatiousness. Let's just chop that off. All the way around. And then, boy, we got really a rounded off kind of looking definition now. Christian relationships, there it is. The problem is, what we started with was relationships in the world. We started with a definition based on our culture, based on what we've seen, based on maybe friends based on what we've watched in the movies. And we, as good Christians should, we obviously recognize a lot of that's just pure sinfulness, selfishness. We've got to chop those things off. 
I think there's a deeper problem. It is insufficient as Christians on any topic, not least this topic, to start with the world and just chop off the edges. It's insufficient. That simply isn't what it means to be a biblical Christian. It's insufficient to create a list of thou shalt nots and you must not go beyond this line and claim to be a biblical Christian. Let me let that sink in for a little bit. The Bible does not merely prohibit certain extremes of behavior and allow us then to proceed with everything else as no big deal. And we all do this in the topic of romance. Well, look, I would, I would never be impure, so what's the big deal? Look, I, I, would, I, I would never just wander from one relationship to the next and dump people. I mean, I would be sensitive, so what's the big deal? I'm just relating to them as a group What's the big deal? We have this kind of thinking that biblical Christianity is, as long as you're not breaking any thou shalt nots in here, you're basically following the Bible. Not true. The Bible claims, and God claims for it, to be the starting point. In other words, we have to blank out of our minds all of our perspectives that life as we've seen it is normal and begin here. If we eliminated every other, and it's almost impossible to do this, but we have to try as Christians, every other thought process, every other experience we've seen, everything you know, that we've noticed in our growing up in this country, this culture, eliminate all of that and say, if all we went with was the Bible, what pattern of relationships would we have? That's what I'm attempting to do with this particular message this morning. And if you would, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Because if we're going to talk about relationships, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Which is when relationships in God's mind begin. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to try as we go into this and clear out of your mind those other definitions. Because I'm just not going to give you a list of boundaries to an existing definition of romance. I'm going to try to say, what does the Bible say, and how are we required then positively to run after that definition of romance? And I think a place to begin is in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 18. You all know the basic story. God created the heavens and the earth, and then we have in Genesis chapter 2 this kind of recapitulation of God proclaiming again his, his uh, power in creation and particularly focusing on his creation of men and women because it's the pinnacle of creation. It's those that are created in the image of God and he wants to state again what he has done in creating them. And God creates the man and after creating the man, uh, he puts him in the Garden of Eden and he gives him some commands and he... He sort of brings all of the creatures to Adam to be named. And so Adam names, you know, the giraffe and the elephant and all these different creatures. And then we get to verse 18. And in verse 18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is 
not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And here we have Adam naming naming the animals. So it says this. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we can just imagine Adam saying, praise God. That God didn't think the elephant was a good fit. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took up one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, I want to make just three observations about this passage, very important passage, when we think about romance. If we're thinking about romance as the starting point being in this word rather than in our culture. And the first observation is this. Being alone is not good. Being alone is not good according to God. Do you notice that in verse 18? It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, we make a lot of jokes about that, right? That's for sure. It's not all the women are very enthusiastic. That's for sure it's not good, man to be alone. Well, I would submit it could be the same could be said for the woman. It's not good for a woman to be alone. It's just not good to be alone. God didn't make us to be unigendered in this earth. It's not good to be alone. And particularly, it's not good to be only of one gender. There's something necessary and good in the way God created us for there to be men and women. God says it's not good to be alone. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, please let me just throw this in there, that every single person in this room or anywhere is going to get married or else they're suffering some sort of judgment or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. Because God does give some people the gift of a communion with him that provides for them in the absence of a spouse. It's very clear in the the Bible that God gives some people the gift of communion with him in a way that sustains them in their absence of a spouse. However, that doesn't minimize the fact that normally... Normally, in our world, this holds true. It's not good to be alone. And we kind of already know this truth. We sort of already experienced that. I, I think that's true from the time you're 14 to the time you're, however old you are, if, if you're still single, there's, there's something that we, it just rings true in our hearts. It's just not good to be alone. Isn't that true? I mean, it, it's just hard to be alone. It's lonely to be alone. There's something in us that desires not just friends in general, but this sort of unique companionship with someone of the opposite gender. There's something within us that says, you know, there's just something in me that 
that's just good. It, it feels good. There's something good about being uniquely, or the thought of being uniquely drawn to and attached to a particular person, that they laugh when I tell a joke, they cry when I'm suffering, they're there when I'm down, I'm there when they're down. There's, there's something good about that. And there's something not good about not having that. We kind of know this already. It doesn't matter for 15, 17, 23 47, I mean, that, that's just true. We, we can feel that. That's why you have a, uh, you know, at, at 14, you've kind of gone through the young sort of adolescent stage, and now you're entering into this young adult stage, and, and here you are, and it, there's something about, you know, girls are cool, man. It's cool to be, it's just different than when I'm around the guys. I like being around the girls, and especially that particular girl. Well, God would agree with you. It's not wrong. It's not, you know, kind of scary. It's not bad that you feel that way. Same is true when you're 21, 22, 25, 47. I, I like being around her. I like being around him. God agrees with you. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be cut off from that kind of unique, intimate relationship. There's something not good about that. There's something that, man, I I agree with God. God says it's not good to be alone. A world without romance is not good. A life without romance, when it is desired, is often a lonely life. It's true. It's, It's not helpful, I don't think, to say to a single person who longs to get married, well, just trust God, brother. I think the first thing it's helpful to say is, God agrees with you. It's not good to be alone. It's lonely. It's painful. You want to get married. You ought to want to get married. It's the way God made you. God, God looked at Adam and said, this isn't going to work all by himself. For a lot of reasons. <laughs> but one of the reasons is, it's just not good that he's alone. I think if we see this as God's perspective before it's our experience, it corrects a couple of lies that come to our mind. The first lie is this. God doesn't care that I'm alone. God doesn't care that I'm alone. God must not understand how hard it is to feel lonely. God must not understand how good it would be to be with someone else. God doesn't care that I'm longing for emotional closeness. I'm watching all my friends get married. I'm just here pining away with nobody to feel close to and No one on the horizon. God doesn't care about that. First lie we believe, not so. God says in Genesis, it's not good to be alone. After everything else he said that is so good, this is the one thing he says, this is not good. So he agrees with that sense of, man, this just, I don't really like this part of my life right now. It's hard. God agrees. God does care. He's put it in his word. It's not good. I understand it's not good for you. Not good in the ultimate sense. I know God is good in all that he does, but there's something painful about the fact that you're alone, and God agrees with that. He does care about that. Second lie I think it corrects is the lie that says, I need to create a solution for this problem. So I sense a problem. It's not good that I'm alone. I don't really believe God cares about it, so I'll figure out a way to care about it. I need to create a solution for this problem. And that it's not good to be alone. And so you have in the world, as I said last night, the hookup culture. 
right? Eliminates all kinds of commitment, but it does solve this problem. I need emotional, physical, relational intimacy with someone. You need that same thing. And let's meet each other's needs right now. We can despise that as we should, as sinful and disgusting. However, there's something inherently right about that desire within them. God put that there. They can't deny it if they wanted to. However, however, the problem is that they've rejected this belief that God would care about that, and they've substituted themselves as a God to provide a solution. I define the problem. I decide God doesn't care, and I'll come up with a solution. Now, this same thing happens in the Christian culture, in the church, right? I need emotional, relational intimacy. So we cut off the edges and say, well, obviously, I know I can't be physically impure. There's direct commands against that in the Bible. However, however, I'll sort of substitute a kind of relational, emotional uh, hopscotch in my life that will attempt to touch all of these bases and skip the one that I'm not allowed to go to. I want to connect with someone. I want to feel relationally close with someone. I feel the need of that in my soul. I can't do anything about it. And so here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to avoid certain categories, but I'm going to try to bond emotionally as often as I can. Because I need to fix this problem. I need to create a solution with this problem. The other thing that relates to this is what we might call why not theology, which we apply to a lot of different categories, not least to this one. Why not theology? Why not theology is the kind of theology that assumes the Bible is only a book of rules about what you can't do. And so we apply this in many different areas in our life. Why not theology? Why not start a romantic relationship right now? Why not express affection and closeness towards someone? To ease the loneliness in my heart. Why not flirt with a bunch of guys if you're a girl? Why not flirt with a bunch of girls if you're a guy? Why not create this kind of... Why not? There's nothing in the Bible that says you shall not flirt with this particular person. There's nothing in the Bible that says that specifically. So why not? Behind why not theology is a doubt that God cares and that God has a solution. It's the belief that as long as I avoid some of the pitfalls of extreme sin, surely I'm following the Bible. Why not theology believes that emotional and physical attraction should create connection regardless of commitment? Usually, when romance leads to sin, it begins with why not theology. If you're a why-not theologian, then you've understood that being alone is not good. But you've stopped short of then believing that God has a solution. And that solution and the honoring of that solution should then dictate everything else we think about the problem. We can't come up with our own solution. We have to have a solution to the problem that reflects God's solution. That's what it means to not just be a why not theologian. It's to be a what has God said theologian. So we start with the positive solution God has given and then we allow that to direct all of our subsequent practice. Being alone is not good. But the second observation to be be made is that being married is God's solution. Being alone is not good. Being married is God's solution. 
Notice it says, it is not good that the man should be alone in verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he brings all the animals. And man, you can just imagine. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the humor of this is, it, it is real. Imagine Adam, he's heard this. I'll make a helper fit for him. The first thing God does is reveal how helpless he is to choose this helper and how desperate he is for God to please be merciful, right? I mean, that's the first thing he does is he just trapes all, I mean, an ant to an elephant gets traipsed before Adam. All in the, I mean, why, did, why do you name the animals first and then say he needed a helper? God didn't do that. He wants to point something out to Adam. He says, you need a helper, and then here, here's the animal kingdom. <laughs> I mean, how frustrating would that be? You know, just you can imagine after the nine billionth creature come by. How long did this take? I don't know. I mean, that, uh, Lord. <laughs> you can just, please, Lord, no. Oh, my gosh, Lord. This, is, this one is too small, too big, too disgusting. Too, but God hasn't told him anything yet. He just said, I'm, I'll find you helper fit. Watch this, you know. And you're thinking, oh, man, we've gone through 800 species of insect, and I just can't even fathom what it would be like to say that they're going to be a helper i mean that's just you know and the elephant comes snakes i mean it just would be exceedingly awkward please i mean just praying out to god lord i don't want to can i name these as different for me as possible i'm a man that's an elephant okay Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, the birds in the heavens, every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. God illustrates our need before he unveils a solution. He illustrates it both by saying, You need a helper. You need someone with you. It's not good to be alone. And by the way, nothing in this created world with all of its grandeur and beauty comes close to the plan that I have for you. I have a unique something that I've created for you. This isn't just a pragmatic solution. All the world doesn't contain the solution that I have. So I have a special creation that I'm going to make just for you. It's helpful to remember as we wait for God's solution to our own lives. It's still true. My plan, my searching, my solutions, they never come close to God's particular plan for me. My attempts to meet this need of being alone, they're always going to fall short of what God has particularly planned for me. God has a solution. Being married is God's solution 
to being alone. Being married is God's solution to being alone. Now, remember, it is so tempting in our culture to assume marriage and want to talk about everything between now and then. And that's usually how the conversation starts. Okay, yeah, marriage, I know that's going to happen someday. I want to know what does the Bible say about between now and then? What is, how do we get there? Between now and then, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? What's acceptable? What's unacceptable? What's the road to a successful future romantic life? What can be done right now? Well, unfortunately, when the Bible talks about romance, it talks about marriage. And so contrary to our culture, we can't start on the road to marriage theologically. We've got to start with marriage because that's what God starts with. So everything that we think has to lead backwards, backwards from this view of marriage that it is God's solution to being alone. Very contrary to how our culture thinks. Very contrary to how the average 15, 16, 17, 22, 23-year-old thinks. Very different than that. Does your view of romance start with marriage and then have everything else subordinate itself to being married as God's solution to being alone? What we want to do is we want to consider the beauty of this solution. God creates the perfect companion for this lonely guy named Adam. Now, it's beautiful in its design because, like him, she has the same body type, the same ability to communicate, the same in her calling to exhibit God's image. But unlike him, she's different enough in body type and tendencies to complement him, to be a sort of completion to him. It's a beautiful design, and it's a beautiful design for you as well. It's not helpful to ask, why hasn't God provided something right now? It's first helpful to ask, isn't it amazing the plan that God has made in the world? And surely that plan is something that I can anticipate as well? It's also a beautiful result. Its its result is beautiful in the amount of unity that this man and woman, they're actually taking from being two different people to now actually being as though they are one. One plus one equals one in the marriage relationship. God's arithmetic takes one lonely guy and one lonely girl and brings them together. The two become one. They experience a unity that only the mind of God could fathom. A unity where when you are with this other person, it is as if you are alone. Doesn't happen with any other relationship. Then this unique marriage relationship and god has that in mind you can see how subtly our craving to provide our own solution is really just a false imitation of what god was thinking about all along there's something i want to be alone with someone else guess where that came from god i'll make something be just like that two will become one you'll be alone with someone else Being married is God's solution. This unity is so passionate that the man is to consider this relationship more important even than the closest human relationships. He leaves his father and his mother. This relationship trumps all the others. It's more important than all the others. And it results in a kind of complete freedom and intimacy with one another that could only happen when two have become one. This is God's solution. It's called marriage. God has seen it's not good for man to be alone. God would say, if you're longing for marriage, I understand it's not good to be alone. 
I got a solution. It's called marriage. This is God's solution to the problem of being alone. It's a beautiful plan leading to a beautiful result. Let me ask you this. Do you love God's solution? Does love of God's solution play itself out in how you relate to guys and girls of the opposite gender? Does that dominate your practice if you're a single guy in relating to single girls, single girls to single guys? I can't give you a list of rules about how to relate to another person. I can say that however you relate to another person, it ought to honor this plan. It ought to uphold this plan. It ought to preserve yourself for this plan. It ought to not mar some of the benefits of this plan by thrusting them into lesser relationships. That's a principle that has to be upheld. Being married is God's solution. Do you love it? Do you practice it? Single guy, do you relate to other girls with the view that being married is God's solution? Are you tempted to assume just being together is God's solution? Single guys, are you tempted to assume just being together with that single girl that I like, being with her, I'm not saying impure, I'm just saying creating a kind of emotional bond and intimacy and closeness. That's what I need. I'm lonely without that. Now, I'm not saying that can never happen until the altar, okay? I'm not saying that. But I am saying there ought to be an, much more of an emphasis placed on really what I'm looking for is to be married. According to God, according to the Bible, really that thing that I want, that's being married. A couple of truths that come out of this, I think, for our practice. First, biblical romance should always have marriage in view. Biblical romance should always have marriage in view. Now, obviously, there are many different kinds of unity. There are many different kinds of closeness with people. We have family closeness, closeness of a father and a son, mother and her son, mother and a daughter. I mean, these kinds of things happen, right? However, biblical romance should always have marriage in view. There just isn't a category in the Bible for a pursuit of romance that is not simultaneously a pursuit of marriage. That just isn't in the Bible. And if we're starting with the Bible, not just as a list of thou shalt nots, but as an actual you know, plan for our life, a roadmap for our life, that should affect how we think about relating to the single guy, single girl. It's got to have marriage in view. Does it have marriage in view? If you're romantically interested in someone which I hope you are, and you're starting to consider a relationship with them, a sort of a unique relationship with them that sort of excludes others and sees this person as unique, you, ha- you have to answer this question if you're going to be biblical about that relationship. Do I have marriage in view? Would a pursuit of this relationship at this time and right now and in this season and in the way that I pursue it, would it exalt God's solution to the problem of being alone, being marriage? Would it exalt that solution? Would it honor that solution? Would it recognize that that solution 
uh, cannot be marred by premature intimacy with another person. If we're to be biblical. Or, or are you seeking to pursue romance without reference to marriage? Is it as though your pursuit of romance, your desire for romance, is a separate road than your desire for marriage? Unbiblical. There just aren't two categories in the Bible, romance and marriage. There's one. You cannot, according to the Bible, if you're going to be obedient to the way the word indicates God's plan is, you cannot pursue romance as this separate category which happens prior to marriage. And then, well, marriage is a whole separate category. I'll pursue it a different time. God's put them along the same road. You have to as well. Biblical romance romance must have marriage in view. Now think about what marriage is. It's emotional and physical desire. It's commitment to another person. It's a knowledge of that person that is exclusive, that is unique, that excludes other relationship. It's a kind of communicative intimacy with this person that delves into a, a depth of emotional closeness. That's what marriage is meant to be. And any kind of romantic relationship I would want to pursue with some person if I'm a single guy, if I'm going to start to dive into some of those kinds of categories, I need to answer the question, do I have marriage in view? Because that kind of pursuit is really inappropriate if if I'm not on the road towards marriage, if I'm not trying to honor God's solution in marriage, to, to, to pursue that kind of closeness, which God has made for marriage, in some other way without reference to marriage, it's, it's really unbiblical, it's inappropriate. Biblical Romans must have marriage in view. Observation number two, sinful romance does not have marriage in view. Sinful romance does not have marriage in view. Biblical romance has marriage in view, Sinful romance does not have marriage in view. Sinful romance does not have marriage in view. Look throughout the Bible and try to find I can't find one. If you find one, come tell me. Try to find a positive reference to romance that does not have marriage in view. Try to find one. The romantic relationships in the Bible that don't have marriage in view are usually, if not always, I would say, always portrayed as sinful. Oh, they have them. There's plenty of romance in the Bible that doesn't have marriage in view. They're sinful. Sinful relationships that are romantic that aren't referencing marriage. And the Bible portrays them as almost, well, always engaging in some sort of sin. That's, that's what we see in the Bible. When there's some romantic thing going on and marriage is not anywhere in view, what's going on over here is sin. I think we're supposed to take some kind of warning from that. Sinful romance does not have marriage in view. The Bible just doesn't have a category for temporary romantic relationships that have little or no direction towards marriage. It just doesn't have a category for those kind of relationships. 
Those that would pursue temporary pleasure rather than permanent commitment, immediate gratification rather than lifelong sacrifice. They're just not in there. Godly. Obviously, there are those that are illicit and sinful that are that way. But the godly ones, they're just not, there's not any godly references to this sort of temporary, without reference to marriage, romantic closeness created with someone with marriage as kind of a distant afterthought. It's just not in there. And if we're going to start here, we've got to take that into account. We can't ignore that if we're attempting to be obedient and start with God's word. Biblical romance has marriage in view. Sinful romance does not have marriage in view. We have to think about those things if we're going to believe that being married is God's solution. Finally, third observation, God's solution is a masterpiece. God's solution is a masterpiece. Being alone is not good. Being married is God's solution, and God's solution is a masterpiece. Ephesians 5.31 says, quoting Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not just God's solution on a human level. Being married isn't just God's solution to our individual problem of loneliness. It's also God's solution to the problem that left to ourselves, there is a way the gospel could be presented in the world that we can't indicate only by, there's a, only by ourselves. There's another type of picture that he wanted to be present in the world that required marriage to proclaim it. And that picture is a man sacrificially loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and a woman submitting to her husband as the church does to her Lord, as Ephesians 5 says. In other words, he's saying, look, it wasn't just because you're lonely that I put this solution in place. Now, obviously, I'm wise, and I can do a bunch of stuff at the same time, right? However, the ultimate masterpiece of this solution is that it proclaims the glory of the gospel. God's solution is a masterpiece. Why? Well, because it proclaims to the world the unique relationship between Christ and His church. The permanent, committed, glorious, beautiful relationship that the Savior has with the bride that He died for and that He now purifies in preparation to see Him. God's solution is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece because it rebounds to His glory. It demonstrates the wisdom of His plan that can be for our benefit, but more importantly for His glory, and that neither of those have to be sacrificed. God's solution is a masterpiece. God made men and women to be romantically involved with each other in marriage as a picture of Jesus Christ and His church. Romance was intended to be preserved as a picture of the unity and unconditional, unchanging love that Jesus Christ has for his church. Let me say that again. Romance was intended to be a picture of the unity and unconditional commitment that Jesus Christ has with his church. Romance was intended to proclaim the gospel. You can see why we must only believe that romance 
should have marriage in view. Why? Because romance has to have the gospel in view. And if romance doesn't have marriage and therefore the gospel in view, then it is undermining the masterpiece that is God's plan. If romance is seen as temporary, pleasure-seeking, lacking commitment relationships, what it is ultimately doing is undermining the proclamation of the gospel in marriage that God intended when He said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. Don't do it. Don't undermine the beauty of God's gospel plan for romance. Romance was made for marriage. Marriage is a masterpiece picture symbolizing the glorious relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. If we believe that romance was built for marriage, we will define our plan for romance right now for a single guy, single girl, as synonymous with a plan toward marriage. Not two separate roads, but one road. We should be in awe that this aspect of our lives, even if we're single, can give honor to God's relational plan to proclaim His gospel in the world. Let me just give you one final illustration. Let's say that you are on your way to, you know, go on some trip. And you're saying, I'm going to the city called Romance. Come to me and say, I'm going to the city called Romance. I would say to you, that's great. That's a great city. I love that city. I've heard where that is. That's that, that goes in the same direction as a city called marriage. Go for it. You should totally go in that direction. I completely recommend it. You stand back a little bit and say, well, well no, I'm, I'm not going towards marriage. I'm going towards romance city. And I say, well, that's interesting because I don't know if you've seen this map right here. It very clearly shows that romance city, marriage city, they're, they're, they're totally in the, You can't. If they're in the same direction, along the same road right here. Well, I don't, I don't want to go towards marriage city. I mean, maybe later. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm good later. Someday, maybe. But, I, I, but romance, I need romance, okay? I want to go towards romance city. I say, well, you can't really... I mean, it's the same direction according to this map. You say, well, you know, I have a marker. So why don't, why, let's just draw romance city over here. And that way I'll go towards Romance City, and that'll be great. I can just go toward, and then sometime later I'll head towards Marriage City. That'll be great. I'll drive over here, Romance. I'm going to head in this direction. Turn the map over and say, well, yeah, but God published this map. He knows where the cities actually are. You cannot biblically pursue romance apart from marriage and claim to be following God's plan. Again, I'm not saying you can't be in love before you get married. I understand the difficulties of that. That's why I'm not saying you don't know somebody, then you marry them, and then you're romantic, right? It's, It's with marriage in view. But you certainly cannot pursue romance 
without reference to marriage. There's nothing about that that's in keeping with God's plan. And God's plan is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece for you. It's a masterpiece because it proclaims the gospel. It's a masterpiece because it works out abundantly for our good. We'll hear more about that in the remaining sessions we have together. But let me just urge you, single guy, single girl, as you evaluate how to be faithful with your relationships with single guys, if you're a girl, girls, if you're a guy, how you are to evaluate that one major question, along with are you elevating the gospel, are you serving your brother or sister in Christ, a third question to ask is, do I have marriage in view? Is the starting of this relationship, or maybe the ending of this relationship, is it honoring marriage? Am I headed towards marriage explicitly as a begin any romantic is the beginning of this relationship taking a step towards a decision about marriage if it's not don't begin god has created a masterpiece let's celebrate it let's pray Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of proclaiming your gospel in romance. Lord, this thing that derives so much benefit to us and yet so much glory to you. And Lord, how you've worked that out is beyond our comprehension. But you have over and over and over again. The gospel brings you glory and us good. And so does marriage and so does romance and so does so many things that you have provided. It brings you glory and us good. And Lord, that's just because you're so much wiser than we are, so much more powerful than we are, and we just want you to receive the glory in every interaction we have with those of the opposite gender, Lord, and for those of us that are married with our spouse, we want you to receive the glory, Lord, for your wisdom and plan are unfathomable and yet delightful to us. And so we give you the glory for it all, and we ask that we would honor you by preserving this plan in all of our interactions. In Jesus' name, amen.